Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today is Nick Espinoza, Head of Technical Solutions at Authenticate. How are you, Nick? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, John. Let's jump right in here. This uh, acronym called OSINT, perhaps you can define it and how this open source is different from uh, Red Hat or different types of open source that are floating out there. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, open source intelligence is the collection of publicly available information that is then uh, processed, analyzed, and exploited to create a finished intelligence product. Um, what you're referring to, uh, like Red Hat and others, that's an open source project, more, more so it's kind of a technology. Um, very similar sounding, however, very different in execution. There's a company called Digital Global that works with a lot of geographic assets and whatnot, and I think some of their uh, sources are not open source. And so we're just focusing about any any person walking down the street can sit down and find information from from Google that is just really fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Like Google dorking and using advanced search techniques, that's the core of what OSINT is. Um, there's so much valuable information that is shared openly. You just need to know how to find it amongst the swath of other information that you can come across. Is this digital forensics or is this a different category? Is this a subset of digital forensics? So digital forensics is a very particular uh, part of the space. So digital forensics is more so looking at uh, an event that occurred and basically trying to piece together what happened, what data was taken, what was the attack vector, how was exfiltrated, et cetera. Um, open source intelligence and threat intelligence certainly plays a part into this. So we oftentimes complement those teams and aid them. Um, but really, it's kind of all source intelligence, open source intelligence, threat intel, you name it. Any variation of those words, you'll probably find someone in this field. You know, here we are in Washington, D.C., it's a town full of journalists. Actually, this is a skill that journalists should actually have in order to determine exactly what what happened, what didn't happen. If an event happened in Syria, you can confirm it, can't you? A hundred percent. And actually, some of the most interesting uh, other folks, like, uh, for example, some people at Facebook are um, coming from a reporting background because they've had to dig, find that ground truth, look at social media, local media sources, on the ground sources, um, forums, chat rooms, et cetera, in pursuit of a story. And those are the exact skill sets that you might need to find those ground truths, whether it's a cyber event, a kinetic event, uh, wartime, you name it. Well, I've told you that we're in Washington, D.C. with a lot of journalists. There's also people in the intelligence community in this town, and they use this word called tradecraft. It almost sounds like something from a James Bond movie or something. Essentially, managed attribution is obfuscating who you are, what you do, and what you're looking for. The combination of technology and tradecraft are needed to go hand-in-hand hand to enable an analyst to uh, accomplish the mission safely, securely, and without compromise. And to your point, uh, we've architected our system, as have many others, to really build in a lot of tradecraft, minimize the signals that might indicate someone from the D.C. area is looking for a particular subset of information on, uh, let's say, a Russian hacker forum or a Chinese military blog, et cetera. So we are 100% enabling better tradecraft, um, better skill sets, and reducing the digital signature of these analysts as they go about their job. You know, in, in spy movies from the 1960s, they'd maybe switch license plates and so they'd misidentify a car. And now on the internet, you can do attribution. You can do as much or as little as you want. In other words, one of your analysts could go to a website and let people think that it's a different person looking at their site. It could be a false flag. So this attribution can be uh, very uh, carefully applied. Yeah, absolutely. And you're kind of spot on. That sort of false flag, changing your IP address, what region you're egressing from, the sort of tells that your hardware software profile gives off, that is absolutely critical and the bare minimum required to really accomplish their job without um, really showing their hand. 
We have done a previous podcast interview talking about the weaknesses of the current browsers that people use. I think we use the phrase, the leaky browser. And a lot of times they give a lot of information about you. And so what you can do is, is you can uh, bring an analyst in with basic analytical skills and teach them how to search on the internet to be found or not be found or remain completely anonymous depending on what they want to accomplish. Is that right? Yeah, that's spot on. Um, you know, our, our platform and many others, again, do provide that sort of level of customization and it allows an, an entry-level analyst from any of these three-letter organizations, law enforcement, and even corporate environments to have a really uh, impressive arsenal and set of tools they can begin to manipulate so they can uh, reduce those tells. Netflix has a series uh, of the old Sherlock show from two or three years ago, and he talks about fingerprints a lot. And But the fingerprints we're talking about today are digital fingerprints. And so if I go over to a, uh, a ABC shoe company site, uh, they know exactly who I am uh, when I visited there and can place information on my browser knowing more about me and what the next site to go to, the next site to go to. And so this is called a, a digital fingerprint. So what you do is you teach your analysts how to control their digital fingerprint. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, let's, let's dig, on, dig in on that a little bit. The digital fingerprint is pretty comprehensive, and there are a lot of things um, that can go into it. So at its most basic level, a digital fingerprint includes information about your hardware, software profile, your network, places like your location, time zone, et cetera. So these are the sorts of things that we want to begin to change so you can begin to better collect information without tipping your hand. Uh, and not only that, humans are, hum are creatures of habit, rather. Yes, I would think. You're looking at data across the open, deep, and dark web. All of these different parts of the internet will constantly be shifting, meaning some sites or services will go up or down. Threat actors might move between different, um, different parts of the web. Sites and services might restrict what data is available or have um, an exploit available in which you can grab more information. Being a good OSINT analyst is being constantly inquisitive, constantly looking for where those ends are so you can find the relevant information for whatever target you're going after. You know, Nick, in, in this general area, this category, there are um, uh, companies that provide automated uh, intelligence collection or harvesting tools, and there'll be customized tools as well. So there's going to be uh, positives and negatives for each one of those. Is that right? Yeah. So I think um, automated intelligence collection and harvesting tools are great for every organization of any maturity level. The reason being there's cost, reliability, user interface, and then just breadth and depth of the data that is collected. Oftentimes trying to build this in-house is very difficult um, and hard to do. Uh, however, each of these different providers really have their own gaps. Um, it could be a collection gap, meaning they're only covering one part of the web or maybe one mission set. Sometimes it's they might only look at the dark web but might miss the other stuff. Um, and then lastly, the searchability of the platform itself, right? Some of them are much more useful for looking at IP addresses and domain names, while others may be much more useful at looking at a hacker group and all the variations of that hacker group's name. So uh, really searchability, breadth and depth of it, and looking at the sort of collections gaps, those are the requirements when you're looking at these sort of automated intelligence collections platforms. You know, mechanics have toolboxes, they have different tools in there for applications. They have a, a wrench, they may have a, a drill, they may have some kind of a router. Uh, and so what an analyst must have is a, uh, uh, a wide purview of what tools are available and then understand which tools to bring in to solve the specific problem they're working on. I guess that's where, that's, that's where this tool set actually comes in, isn't it? Yeah, you're spot on. So 
analysts have a toolbox in which they have a range of tools, need to know when and where to apply the right one. Otherwise, you're trying to, you know, hammer a nail with a screwdriver. So, uh, you know, a lot of vendors, a lot of different platforms, a lot of different missions. Um, that's where you really need that smart analyst that knows exactly what they're looking for and how to backtrack and find that data amongst their available um, sets. So if an analyst is searching a problem, it could be a journalist trying to find out if an event actually happened. It could be someone in the intelligence community looking up a malicious actor. Um, uh, what they really have to do is they may use the right tool for the right application. And so one tool might be using a secure browser where they're not identified. And so that's where Authenticate might fit in, where an analyst looks at the tools available and decides to use a secure browser for this particular set in that day. Yeah, exactly that. So um, this is kind of a nice pairing, right? You have uh, automated intelligence collections platforms, and they are great at providing you with a surface-level understanding of what was collected and what is on a web page or a dark web service, et cetera. However, if you are getting very deep on a particular subject, you want to view it firsthand, and you need to do so safely and securely, and that's where the remote browser comes into play. Um, you'll be able to view that source um, directly as it's originally rendered, You'll be able to do so without tipping your hand that you're an analyst in Reston, Virginia, looking at a Chinese military forum, because you'll look like a device coming out of, let's say, Singapore or Shanghai, and your languages on your box are showing Chinese uh, and English, for example, and your time zone is matching. So 100%, that's when you want to jump into that next deeper layer, which is firsthand collection and analysis of publicly available information. Back when Mark Andreessen came up with the Netscape browser years ago, I remember that, uh, but now I guess people can almost maybe write their own code for a browser or they can use custom off-the-shelf systems. It's, it's a lot more uh, flexibility than just making one browser from a company that everyone else uses, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot of complexity with this particular problem set. So remote browsers, there's a very high barrier to entry, meaning knowing what to harden, what to obfuscate, and making it reliable and user-friendly. That's something that's really best left to professionals. Things like VPNs and proxies and virtual machines, these will only get you so far. And there are a ton of techniques in which our adversaries can identify uh, everything that you're doing, uh, even in those sort of environments and using those sort of tools. I uh, can't talk too much on the details, but there's a lot of effort that goes into the architecture and reduction of your signature in platforms like ours or other remote browsers. Well, I guess you can't have a conversation uh, in this town about technology without mentioning uh, AI. And some people think that means all in. Other people think it means artificial intelligence. So th this is just a, a general ability that's being applied to managing data centers, the car repair, uh, aircraft maintenance. Where does this fit in as far as is your world of you know um, doing research on the web? Yeah, so off, uh, our analysts will go out and grab a large swath of information at times. Sometimes it might be a database. Sometimes it might be a treasure trove of documents. Um, sometimes it might be, you know, a bunch of IP addresses that are mixed in with other bits of information. So where artificial intelligence, natural language processing, and machine learning come into play is making sense of the data when an analyst is starting to get overwhelmed. So uh, in my particular scenario, analysts will use our tool to grab the data safely and securely. Then they'll bring it in within their network boundary to make better sense of it um, and make it searchable and useful for that mission. Where does overconfidence fit in the role of an analyst? I would think that uh, if you have someone who has good basic skills, maybe has some formal training from the government, 
and uh, starts working for your organization and, and you coach them up to the pro level, uh, there's always weaknesses. Everyone's got a weakness. You know, the, in sports, people you study tape all the time for weaknesses in pitchers, weaknesses in hitters, in baseball. So, so, so what are the weaknesses? What are some of the, the, uh, the foibles of, a, of an analyst? Sure. So this really comes into that combination of technology and tradecraft, right? So an analyst needs to know where their gap is in the platform that they're using. Whether it's a collection platform, there could be collections gaps. Whether it's a browser, it's the sort of tells they give off. Um, with their actual uh, persona they might be using online, they're likely going to need a cover plan. Um, with the source of data that they're going after, they're likely going to want to conduct a risk assessment to know how risky it is to use this tool to go after that data set. Um, so it's really kind of a, a two-prong uh, approach there. It's the tradecraft uh, element, which is the human element, and then the technology element, meaning you know the tools they're, they're applying to the problem. Can be simple as simple as uh, always doing your browsing from nine to five Monday through Friday in the East Coast, versus other areas of the world. Exactly. Yeah, pattern of life analysis. This is something that the National Geospatial Agency really uh, pioneered. Is looking at someone's general signature as what they're doing and applying it to a known. Uh, uh, bad signature, right? So if someone wakes up at a certain time, traverses a particular location, engages with a certain group of individuals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all of these various bits uh, of their pattern of life are indicative of badness. And this sort of pattern of life analysis is obviously applicable on the observable set when you're looking at someone and what they're doing, but also with their digital fingerprint as well. Coming out of uh, an East Coast IP address between nine and three and taking a lunch break when a government employee normally would. Um, these are very real tells that adversaries are looking at in their logs to try to identify folks like us. Earlier in the discussion, you talked about open, deep, and dark web. Three different categories or what are those three different areas that we're talking about? Sure. So the, the open web is essentially any website or service that is indexed and searchable on things like, let's say, Google or Bing, et cetera. So easy things you can go to in your normal browser today. The deep web is considered information that's behind some sort of wall. It could be a paywall, like let's say a LexisNexis database, or it could be an investment forum, or it could be a chat room you need to log into. Um, and then lastly, the dark web is commonly referred to as the onion router or Tor. It's the most um, used uh, protocol for accessing a unique part of the web today, but there are other variations like I2P and Freenet and so on. But the idea there is you need specialized software and protocols to access it and also a knowledge of where to go because these are by design not searched and indexed by the common scrapers like Google, et cetera, that are trying to make sense of the world. Um, their very nature makes it very hard to do so. Well, in a big circle here, Tor was actually developed by, I think, the Navy and the federal government, wasn't it? I mean, that's the origin there. I mean, it's it circles back to get you, doesn't it? Yeah, it's actually really uh, kind of, well, not a funny story, but an interesting one nonetheless. Yeah, so Tor did come out of a joint Navy and DARPA program <laughs> right. for transmitting intelligence information in adversary-controlled space. Then they open-sourced it, and uh, in concept, we thought that it would be used for political dissidents and other people that need to get information out and about. But the reality of it is it's so well-architected that threat actors use it now to uh, do anything you can imagine, from selling drugs to weapons to sharing classified documents to child exploitation information just because of how secure that protocol is. So anonymity and managing attribution on 
the open web is as important as on the dark web as well. So, so the, the skills involved would be transferable in any of these three areas, I would assume. Yeah, exactly that. So most of the very complex adversaries will traverse all parts of the open, deep, and dark web. Um, just to kind of get, give a backgrounder on my experience with it, the open web is the most voluminous. Uh, however, it's the least valuable data set just because it's all out there. There's, a, there's very little security afforded to users of the open web. Deep web, um, the data gets a little bit thinner, a little bit more valuable, and usually um, people are a little bit more willing to share something interesting there. And then the dark web it is the thinnest data set, but the most valuable information will come out of that because of the level of uh, security afforded to users. But people will go up and down the stack on open, deep, and dark to tip and cue other people to, hey, come talk to me here, or I have a really interesting data set there, et cetera, et cetera. When you're at a, a class reunion or if you're at a wedding and you talk to people about what your company does and, and you talk about different types of browsers out there, my guess would be that 99.9% .9 of people have absolutely no idea what's going on with the browser they're using. They would just, they would, they think it's walking down the street, it's seeing another Starbucks, it's just, it's just as safe as safe can be. They must be surprised when they have a conversation with you and you go, do you know what you're doing here? <laughs> uh, so the, the initial part of the conversation is always the hardest because what we do is so niche and unique to us yeah. um, that, like you said, most people have no idea it's a product category unless they're in the space, um, like let's say an enterprise security uh, company or a large corporation that needs to secure their uh, employees or work in the DOD or IC. But uh, when we start getting into it, I'll give examples like, remember when you're on that online shopping website and you look at a Mr. Robot t-shirt and then you hop on social media and you see it start to get advertised there. Then you hop on your phone and you see it on you know, an Instagram ad. Um, that's because there are a range of tracking mechanisms that will identify you regardless of device, regardless of what network you're on. Um, you know, you are being tracked 24 by 7 um, by adversaries or friendlies or advertisers alike. Is there going to be an instant here in the future where people are going to see something bad happen to another person and go, oh, because they were tracked in their browser because of that, and then look at other solutions and other options? Or is, is, this, is this a human problem, a technical problem? Or, I mean, it's just, it, it seems if it's free, then, the, then the, the person who's using it is the product. It seems to be the human being needs to have, be slapped in the head somehow in order to go, whoa, I have to be more careful about this. Yeah, so there, there actually have been real-world events in which uh, tracking mechanisms, like, for example, uh, uh, an Islamic militant shared a photo on social media without realizing their geo-coordinates were turned on, and that resulted in a drone strike. Um, there are examples like Witch Coven in which DOD, IC, and embassy staff were targeted by supposedly Russian adversaries by using these sort of tracking networks that eventually led them to get fingerprinted and eventually exploited. Um, and then in the day-to-day -day stuff, uh, I'm sure all of our bank accounts have taken personal hits as well by the level of accuracy in advertising. And then even our election cycle, uh, Cambridge Analytica and others are making very good sense of this sort of behavioral and tracking information that's coming from the browser to influence um, you know, who may win or not win uh, an election. So I think we're already seeing the effects of it. It's just a matter of putting it together and educating people as to really the origins of where this comes from, which is all of the laptops, uh, iPads, uh, mobile devices that we're carrying about with us that enable people to target us um, for whatever end it may be, financial, political, um, or otherwise. 
You know, you said that phrase very trippingly in the tongue, being fingerprinted. I think of Sherlock Holmes, and you think of a digital fingerprint where they, they can capture and, and find exactly everything about you, and, and may or may not use that. And, and if you work for a part of the federal government, they could hold that in reserve to, to attack you in, in the future somehow, I would imagine. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, thanks to bulk purchases, uh, it's very easy for our adversaries to identify you know, who we are because we purchase those machines in bulk. And the same thing for corporations, right? Every corporation likely has a baseline operating system and hardware profile that can very quickly be identified. Um, you know, even, uh, you know, large tech companies have their own IP space that they're operating out of. So there are just tons and tons of tells that everyone is giving off. And all it takes is someone who is interested enough to really make sense of it and then choose to uh, be malicious. Earlier in the interview, you used the big fancy word obfuscate, <laughs> and uh, that means to disguise or maybe uh, intentionally, not intentionally. It seems that th- there may be organizations that are that are naive, and and for that that may be a reason why some uh, intellectual property is being lost to adversaries is because they're not open minded enough to realize what exactly is going on with their browser, and 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 as far as as uh, e- even the hardware aspects of it. Talk to people from Intel that say your whole security stack is built on hardware and that hardware may not be secure. Yeah, there there have been tons and tons of backdoors and chipsets that um, that are vulnerable. So when you have a kernel level vulnerability, the rest of the stack is pretty much just obviated. So hardware security is an entirely different conversation that I'm not qualified to speak on, but you're spot on. Uh, if you're compromised at the hardware level, the rest of it is just game over. I imagine if you were determined on a Saturday and go to YouTube, you could find a lot of this information yourself without taking the training. It's just it's a, uh, it's a topic I think many people don't realize, and I think they have to at least bring up to speed with what's going on out there. Yeah, everyone uh, I think today is an OSINT analyst in some way, shape, or form. Uh, you'd be amazed at what people's girlfriends can do when they're determined enough. You can be amazed at what a reporter can put together based on what they're seeing Uh, In social media, you can be amazed at what a government analyst puts together with a mixture of classified and open source stuff. So um, you're spot on. You know, uh, open source is something everyone can do. There are varying levels to it, but in some way, shape, or form, we all have that skill set. It's just a matter of developing it. So up close and personal, you have a notebook computer open up in front of you. What browser do you use every day when you check baseball scores or air flights or what do you use? So, uh, of course, I work for Authenticate. So I, I, use, <laughs> better. I use Silo. And then we also have another product that, that's called Toolbox that I use. Um, but, of course, I have my own little sandbox environment. So corporate can't see into there. <laughs> so paranoia will destroy you. So you're real careful about that. Even would you, would you visit someone's house and just check an airline reservation or something at a hotel or something? Or are, you, are you wary of that as well? So the shameless product plug in some ways, but we actually do have what's called a thin client where you can access our platform in another browser. So it's a browser in a browser. And when I am traveling, I do use that. It, uh, it affords you a lot of security. Uh, I have in-depth knowledge on our infrastructure and architecture. So uh, it scares me to actually use a, no- a normal browser on a machine that is not mine. Because you always see it in, ho- like in San Francisco hotel lobby, just print out your boarding pass and you go down there. And no chance. And just like, Zero. sure. I mean, it's just, it's just it's, do people realize that they're like, they're putting their wallet out in their hand and handing it to people? I mean, it's so dangerous. It's absolutely dangerous. It's, it's actually terrifying how open people are in honestly, kind of what seemed like no-brainer situations. You should not use a public network with your normal browser. You should not have your phone connect to that Xfinity Wi-Fi access point. Um, there's just, there's just, it's insane how little people are educated on it. Um, but 
if you have something like Silo or Toolbox, you should be set. Well, that's, that's kind of scary. I'd like to thank today's guest, Nick Espinoza, Head of Technical Solutions Authenticate. I'm your moderator, John Gilroy, and you're listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Your browser betrays you, even more so if you operate undercover online. It helps third parties identify and track you. To solve this, Authenticate built Silo Research Toolbox, the cloud-based research browser. With Silo Research Toolbox, OSINT analysts can spoof location, IP, device, and language. Cyber investigators can click any link, open any doc, and save any file without risk. Law enforcement officers can navigate the dark web safely and easily. Ask about a free trial at authentic, the numeral 8, dot com forward slash FNN. 